0: I just knew in my core, this is something I had to follow through on. People say, you got to break the rules. We didn't even know what the rules were. If it's not stronger than just an idea, don't follow through on it. I started noodling it in my brain. And that was just after college. I was 22 years old.
1: Where did you take it from there?
0: Nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's a big world out there Go explore it, go have a little fun with it and Just take it as it comes, and it's a beautiful place My name is Rob Angel I'm the inventor of the board game Pictionary I live in Seattle, Washington And
1: I am turning 60 years old 60 years young, huh? Well, yeah, that's very true Pictionary, I think most people understand what that is, but in case the digital age, maybe there's not as many young people playing board games. Could you tell us what Pictionary is?
0: Yeah, well, Pictionary is an old school game back in the 80s, invented in 85. It was a drawing game. So someone would sketch a picture and your teammates would try to guess it. And the first team it was a team game. First team to guess the word correctly would move along the board. It was just an incredibly simple concept that caught on. It's sketching pictures, guessing
1: pictures. It's that simple. As a child, you just wanted to make a board game and be a successful entrepreneur as you grew up? (laughs)
0: No, I had no idea what I was going to do when I grew up. I went to college to be a businessman like my father, played a lot of games as a kid in the neighborhood. But no, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't have
1: grandiose plans. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And you said your dad was a businessman. What type of businessman was he?
0: He owned his own furniture store for a while. And then he eventually, when we moved to Spokane, Washington, wound up running, it's called Alaska Steel and Supply. It was a big steel company and he was the president and I was watching him in his office. I'd work summers there and I'd see him in his office and he was in charge of people and ran the joint. And I was, you know, as a kid, I was really impressed. And I thought, yeah, that's cool Seeing see my dad do that. So that's what I'm going to do. That was my path. Did you tell him about that? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if I ever... Yeah, you know, I did. And later on, we were having some conversations. And, you know, I told him that. I also told him that it wasn't for me. As a kid, I thought it was cool. But once I really started looking at it when I got to college, I thought what he did is not my skill set. I have no interest. What wasn't for you? Just like the management part of
1: running something like that?
0: Yeah, I ultimately, I realized I didn't want to run people. I'm not a detail-oriented guy you need that. And that also worked into my benefit for my company. We can talk about later, but yeah, I wasn't a detail-oriented guy. So it was all the nuts and bolts of it. it just not something I wanted to do. I wanted to stay on the creative side, as it turns out, not the management side.
1: So you said going into college, that's kind of what you thought you wanted to be. And then why don't you tell us where you went to college and what you studied and kind of take us along your chronological order of things?
0: Sure. So I went to college up in Bellingham, Western Washington University. I wanted to get a business degree. And to me, that meant be a businessman like my father, like I said. Halfway through my freshman year, my father gave me a call and he had been fired from his job. So I had to make the choice as an 18-year-old kid, do I want to put myself through college? He couldn't afford it anymore. Just is what it was. So I had to do a gut check and make the decision because I had to start putting myself, paying it for myself. It just really wasn't an option. I wanted that degree. I wanted to continue. So I wound up getting jobs in the cafeteria, waited tables to put myself through school. That to me just made it more real. I mean, I had to take it seriously because it was on my dime. I started taking business courses and the accounting and the math and the stats courses. They just didn't really resonate but I knew I had to do it to get my degree. There was a few projects along the way that Some of the marketing classes we took for your business degree that I really, really enjoy. I started gravitating towards the more creative parts of the business degree when I could. And then, back then, they didn't have entrepreneurial degrees, but there was a few odd classes that had the word in them. And so I started taking those courses, and just the light bulb went on. And that's what totally resonated with me, being my own boss, creating something from scratch, being in charge of my own destiny completely resonated with me. And that was the turning point for me at the end of college and the rest of my life.
1: I think that's what a lot of people who are listening. Think about too. Like they're probably listening because they want to be able to control their own destiny. It's kind of cool. I guess at that point in your life, you figured out you wanted to do that and that you're able to work another job in order to make ends meet to go to college. How about as you graduated college, were you debt free and what'd you end up doing from there?
0: I was not debt-free. It wasn't like it is today. Like I said, I'm 60 years old. I borrowed a total of $3,000. I managed to work myself. But one of the loans that I took was $2,000 from my uncle, who loaned me the money. And the deal was, to finish, I was just tired. I wanted to get through. And the deal was I'd have to pay him. Six months after I graduated college, he didn't care the amount, but I just had to start paying. So six months in, I started sending the checks. And some months I didn't have enough money and I'd send him a little note. I'd say, hey, Uncle, don't have any money this month. I hope you're having a great day.
1: <laughs> I love you, uncle. Yeah, I love you.
0: Thanks for helping me out here. I mean, it was really goofy stuff, but it was really important to me to pay the debt, to acknowledge the debt. And it was important for him too. He didn't care that I didn't pay him or I didn't have any money. He only cared that I acknowledged the debt. And I did month after month after month until it was paid off. And
1: that little... Story is one of the big reasons that pictionary happened. Tell us about that. You waited till after you graduate when you had to start paying them back. Yeah, it was six months after graduation, okay, and then you said after that, basically when pictionary started.:
0: No, so from graduating college, I went back to Spokane waiting tables, really, still no direction. I moved in with three buddies, and we started playing, and we were all waiting tables, and we started playing the charades on paper game. And one of the guys knew it, and we'd be up all night just sketching words out of the dictionary, drinking beer, and having a ball. There was no rules, no board, no game, nothing. It was just an activity, but we had a ball. And I kept going, you know, this would make a good board game. And everybody would talk about it, and the next morning the joke became I was the only one to remember. <laughs> Maybe too many beers, I don't know. Oh, who am it? yet Yeah, too many beers. It just stuck with me, and board games were popular, and I remember them as a kid, so I started working on it a little bit. I wrote some rules on a yellow legal tablet. I wrote some ideas, and I started noodling it in my brain. And that was just after college. I was 22 years old.
1: Where did you take it from there?
0: Nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) To be perfectly honest, I have what's sometimes called short attention span theater. I was planning for a trip to your backpack through Europe for five months. I kind of lost a little bit of the interest. I knew that the only thing people would buy instinctively, I just knew that the words would what people would pay for it we didn't need a board we didn't need anything else but nobody wants to go through a dictionary and find a word nobody wants to kind of think of their own words as they're playing and so I couldn't figure that out and so I just kind of put it in a drawer and forgot about it for two and a half years went to Europe back to Spokane but then I moved to Seattle and as I was unpacking my stuff I came across things I'd written two and a half years earlier so now make sure top of mind again and you're about twenty five years
1: old? Yeah, about twenty five years old. I'm good at math. And then Yeah, you're better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're out packing you come back. And where did you go when you went to Europe? Oh my goodness, it was
0: fantastic. I had a backpack and I went all over. It was an incredible adventure. I'd literally walk up to the hitchhiking place, wait my turn if I had to, and wherever the car was going, I would wind up going there. I went all over Western Europe, you know, down south, I went touched into Eastern Scandinavia just Greece everywhere it was just an incredible learning experience that things work out you're gonna get to where you want to go if you don't have a destination guess what you're gonna get there it's perfect
1: hey everyone I want to take a minute to talk to you about square payroll these are the same guys and gals who created the square reader you know the little white card reader that helps retail stores and restaurants accept credit cards They're one of the most trusted brands in small business. That's why I was so excited when they contacted me about their new payroll product. Just like they made it easy to accept credit card payments, Square is now making it easy to pay your team and your taxes, no matter what kind of business you run. Square Payroll automates your tax withholding and payments at no extra cost. So you know they're always calculated and filed correctly. Even better, they just launched the new payroll app, So you can run payroll from anywhere, anytime. For just 29 bucks a month and $5 per employee, that's the best payroll deal I could find for any small business. So if you'd rather spend your time focused on generating revenue instead of studying the federal tax handbook and you'd like to support the show, then go check out the app by searching Square Payroll in the Apple iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or better yet, to make sure they know you heard the ad here, then go check them out By directly going to this link, millionaire-interviews.com forward slash square. For your listening pleasure, we've also included that link in the show notes of your podcast app. So go check it out below. Again, that's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash square. Tell us like how much did that cost? Were you scared of it? It did not sound like it. It sounded like you just got the ticket and went over there and you'll figure it out. I had
0: uh, $14 a day budget. That was for food, campground, everything. My expectations, I'll say, were low, and so they were never disappointed. And I just took everything as it came and every experience. And if I was enjoying something, I would stay. I didn't ever feel the need to get up and do anything or go anywhere. If I was enjoying friends that I'd met or wherever I was at, if I was in the moment, I would just stay and wait to go whenever I felt like. And it was a campground, set up my tent. I stayed in very few youth hostels, couldn't even afford those. But that just was an amazing experience that partly made me who I am today.
1: Would you just work odd jobs between these cities that you were in? No, no, in Europe? Yeah. No, I never worked. How much money you had saved up to do all this? 2,500 bucks. Okay. So you still had a debit card or whatever at that point in time? Nope. No? Nope. You just had all cash on you? All cash. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess a- I'd be more scared because it's on you. I like using cash for things, but I guess most people don't these days. It seems like it'd be kind of scary to carry around your life savings right there. <laughs> well, now that you put it that way, <laughs> you know, it was a little different then. We're talking mid-80s. It was a little different
0: thing. You know, and weirdly, yesterday I put my daughter on a plane. She's 24 and she's headed off to Europe for a month backpack. And she's got cash and debit cards. <laughs> yeah, I'd suggest debit cards as well, yeah.
1: What was the coolest place that you visited while you were over there? Oh, man.
0: I would say Interlaken, Switzerland. Yeah, up in the Swiss Alps. That was just incredible. I'd never seen such a thing like that, these mountains. And I got picked up one day by this old man, and he was going to take me to Interlaken. He goes, Monarch. or what? Eat French? I kind of knew that. He took me up the side of a mountain, and it was like out of a picture of Heidi. I get out of the car and there's his wife and this Edelweiss dress and the flowers. They served me lunch. It was just a beautiful experience. And that was just kind of typified the entire trip. Go with what's in front of you. I just went with the experience. I didn't say no. I didn't question it. I didn't think too hard about it. It seemed like the right idea at the time. And I went with it and had an amazing experience. And then he drove me back down to the hitchhiking point And that was that. It was a beautiful day.
1: I just Googled it. It's pretty amazing. If you're on your phone, I think it's worth taking a look at. Interlaken, that's I-N-T-E-R-L-A-K-E-N, Switzerland. Yeah, it does look like it's out of a movie. Yeah, it was crazy. Any other experiences in case people are travelers who are listening and maybe want to go to some of the same places that you went? Yeah, I have a big affinity for Spain.
0: I like, and I've been back many, many times since that trip, but I like the vibe. I like the history. The people are great. The weather is great. And if you go to Costa del Brava, which is, excuse me, Costa del Sol, which is down south on the beach, hundreds of miles long, but that's a fabulous area. I run with the bulls every year now. I go to Pamplona every year. I'm a big Spain fan. Have you
1: been run over yet?
0: I came within about six inches of getting my head bashed in about three years ago. I got knocked down. I got just lucky I didn't get stepped on. It was crazy, but it was cool
1: one point over this time, what two and a half years you said? Yeah. So did eventually you just get tired and say it's time to come back home?
0: No, I was in Europe for five months and I came back and I went back to waiting tables and I was waiting for my aha moment. So yeah, I was still just waiting tables and biding my time and just enjoying being twenty four years old.
1: You came back maybe about two years later, you end up moving, you see the pictionary rules and then why don't you take it from there? What happened?
0: So I saw the rules, it was top of mind again. I kept going back to the old problem of the word list. I knew that was it. How do I get it into a board game? One day, my mom sends me Trivial Pursuit. They were all the rage in Canada and U.S. by now. She sends me Trivial Pursuit, and I remember like it was yesterday. I was living with three other different friends, and I opened up the box, and I take out that Trivial Pursuit card, I look at it. I go, holy moly. That's it. You print the words on a card. I had no idea it could be done. I looked at it and I just kind of, I think my head started spinning. It was like overwhelming. There was no doubt at that moment. You can call it whatever you want. But the aha moment, that moment for me was, I knew I had to do it. There was no, well, what if I do? I just knew in my core, this is something I had to follow through on. It's different than an epiphany where you'll sit around with friends and you'll have this great idea or I'll have a great idea for whatever, a business or a product. And that's an epiphany. Oh, this will work. If it's not stronger than just an idea, don't follow through on it. But at that moment, my aha moment was I had no choice but to do Pictionary.
1: So tell us about the steps about making the game then.
0: (laughs) I'm chuckling because that was a process. Right. It was, I've got the card, I've got to get the word. So the first thing I did was get my first step. So you got to take that first step. And the easiest, cheapest, simplest thing to do was get the word list. So I got a... $2.85 dictionary, a yellow legal tablet and a pen, and I went in the backyard of the house, and I started making the word list. And that was my first simple, easy step. didn't cost me anything but four bucks and time. I could afford both. It was just getting started is always the hardest part. As I've said, if I had a thought at that moment when I'm in the backyard of all the steps necessary and all the things I would have had to have gone through to make dictionary as big as it was, I probably wouldn't have started for me, it would have been overwhelming. It's like, oh, remember I said earlier, I don't want to be a businessman. So I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm just thinking of all these, if I'd have thought of all these things, it would have been tough for me.
1: After you write the words on there, next day, you just make the board game and it's done? (laughs) Oh, that'd be easy.
0: No, no. It was, I did the word list. And then because of my not wanting to run the business, I had to first collect, as I call them, a couple of business partners and one was a graphic artist in the restaurant I worked in. I did a play test, and to be honest, it was horrible. I'm not very good at my own game. It's a graphic artist. And then I was doing a play test, and I asked one of my friends to join, and he wound up saying no. So now I'm going, holy moly, I've got to get a business partner. And he did a play test for me, and because of him saying no, I wound up meeting my business partner, Terry Langston, who was genius. And so instead of getting too fussed over one no, it worked out and I wanted it with the best partner. And so we had to figure out how to take it from conceptual stage to physical game. That's where we were completely and totally lost. And remember, this is before the internet. So we couldn't just go online and figure out how to make it work. We knew we were going to do a thousand games as our first run. And we were going to sell those locally, but we knew there was no one company that would supply us with parts. So I had to go to the phone book and literally look up the word boxes because I knew we needed boxes. And we found a box maker, and then we needed printing, and then we went through a bunch of printers through the phone book, and it just became this giant jigsaw puzzle of trying to put everything together, I'd get all the pieces together, which we wound up with nine different companies supplying us with parts, and they were all sent to my apartment.
1: Okay, so yeah, this was the real first step. It sounded like other than writing the words down, the next kind of business step, if you will, is thinking about everything you needed. It was the box to actually put together, Pictionary to give it to people. How much did all that end up costing? It cost
0: us hard cost twenty two dollars when we were doing it. there were so many moving parts that Terry was taken care of. we had no idea what it was going to cost. We had set our wholesale price
1: at fifteen dollars and it cost you twenty two per yeah, so that's an issue.
0: Yeah, was a, <laughs> now you're good
1: at numbers. do the math for me here. <laughs> I think you might
0: be losing money. We were losing seven bucks a game, but our competition through the pursuit was selling for thirty and we had to compete. That dictated our wholesale price. It was fuzzy math at best, but we had
1: no choice. So you actually did sell them for that price and lost money on this first 50?
0: <laughs> we oh. did. It was If we tried to make money on that first run, the games would have been selling for 45 bucks or whatever it was, which is about 108 We figured out the math, which would be $108 in today's money. We just couldn't do it. We just had to have faith that we would be able to produce more games in numbers and quantity and bring our production
1: costs down per game. And how many were there in that first batch? 1,000. Okay, dang. Yeah. So you made a 1,000 of them. Your business partner had the money. He had maybe like 30K or something he put in?
0: No, that was what I said earlier about my uncle because I was, as he called me, a man of my word when we realized our initial investment after a lot of conversation was $35,000. That would cover manufacturing costs, whatever that would be, but nothing for salaries. Everything went strictly into the business, so we needed 35. We went the family and friends route for the three partners. The only person we knew, I knew, that had that kind of money was my uncle. And so we took a meeting, and he had no idea what we were talking about. It was like, Jared, I heard this meeting, and he doesn't understand the game, even though I was trying. My selling skills weren't awesome at this moment, let's be honest. I was learning as we were going. He has no clue, but he said, hey, you know, I want to help my nephew. You showed your man your word, and he wrote us the check. It was brilliant, but it's not just because
1: he felt sorry for me. I worked for that. Yeah, he saw it as an investment. Like you said, it wasn't just like a blank check for no reason. What was your uncle's name since we keep referring to him? Uncle Jerome. Jerome. Yes. Uncle Jerome helped us out with the first investment. And what happened after that, after you went and lost money on selling these first 1,000? I think the bigger point is we sold those first 1,000. Oh, that's good. Okay, yeah. I didn't even know if you were able to solve 1,000. So you sold out the first 1,000?
0: Yeah. As we say, we said our naivete in the business worked to our advantage completely. People say you got to break the rules. We didn't even know what the rules were. I've never sold a game. I've never seen a game. It was goofy, but it was amazing. So we'd made our decisions on three guiding principles. One was we went with our instincts. We had imperfect knowledge. We didn't know how to sell. We didn't know how to market. We didn't know how to cost the game. We didn't know what the best stores were to sell. So we just went with our instincts from the beginning, and it worked out perfectly for us. The other one was no ego. Every decision, that kind of dovetails into number three as well, is every decision that we made was based on dictionary, not based on our egos, not based on how you felt that day. But if we
1: made every decision
0: that was for the benefit of the game, so when we got in arguments, we'd be fighting for the game, not each other.
1: Describe that a little bit more, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, there's a classic example of that when, and my two business partners keep in mind, we didn't know each other. We were learning about each other. We had this shared sense of, we're doing something here. Let's see where we can take this. There was no grandiose plan to sell all these games. Our intention was just to sell and make a really good game. That was it, and that bonded us, and that kept us together. But it was a shared sense of purpose for that, and that, for us, as a small startup with only three principles, it was key.
1: Again, back to like the ego versus the Pictionary, can you give, describe like one argument where you can tell us as an example where you fought for Pictionary?
0: So Gary was a graphic artist. We did wind up doing extra press runs, bigger runs, and we'd go for a press check, which is where one of us would go to the manufacturer to make sure it was printed to our specifications. Gary couldn't go because he was working somewhere else, and so we said, Terry. He was the one that could take the time. Well, he's you know button-down business guy. This is a bad idea. So we send him. The games to come back. We're looking at them, and these look great. And all of a sudden, Gary goes absolutely crazy. Gary designed the board with blue box with a salmon lettering. When they came back, they were blue with white lettering, and Gary went epileptic. He's, <laughs> I can imagine. Oh no, you can't. You have no idea. He went absolutely, he's screaming and yelling, and then I'm watching this whole thing, and I'm looking at Terry, oh, gosh, something's happened, says to Gary, I changed the color. He's looking at him, like, are you nuts? This is my game. I designed this. And Terry says, well, I think the white looks better. It pops. It just shows the name Pictionary better. And Gary's going, USOP. I spent hours, and I did it perfectly, and I picked the colors, and I did all these things. And Terry says, Gary, look at the box. Take your ego out of this and look at the box. You know, Gary takes a couple of deep breaths, looks at the box. Ten minutes, he's calming down. And he goes, you know what? It does look better. The lettering is going to now be white. And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. That was the end of the fight, end of everything. So he took his ego out of the
1: decision and said, yeah, okay, let's move on. Moving on, why don't you move us down the timeline of after selling this first thousand, what happened next? Well, we sold the first thousand and then we had. Which congratulations, by the way. Excuse me? Congratulations, by the way. The hardest part is making sure, because at first you said your first test run didn't go very well.
0: Well, I mean, this gets back to we didn't know what we were doing. My selling strategy was unique, shall we say. I figured if retail outlets sold anything. You might as well be selling picture, not just toy and game stores. I went to furniture stores, bookstores, department stores, knick-knack stores.
1: Anybody, if you sold something, Okay, so yeah, after
0: all doing that, what happened? So then we went back and we found a manufacturer to do 10000 as our next run. We borrowed a little more money from uh, Uncle Jerome, and those were $8.60 per game, not 22
1: they, Wow, because he did so much, so many more. So
0: many more, plus they didn't start to finish.
1: Okay, so that seems like a big upgrade as far as ease for you too, versus having, what, eight companies to put it together? You have one? Oh, yeah. It changed everything. And it's a third of the price? That was a finger-crossing f- moment. What is it going to be? Yeah. so It came forward. Did y'all celebrate when you found out it was only going to be about eight bucks?
0: Yeah. We had about 30, 40 seconds. Now we can make some money and we can at least keep in business. Then we just went right back to work. Well, just continue.
1: One of your guys had a side job, it sounded like. Did you and your other partner as well?
0: Yeah. Until we were almost through selling that first thousand in the fall of 85. We launched in May 30th of 85. Until fall, we all were working full-time jobs. I was working full-time at the restaurant, as was Gary. He was actually working somewhere else. So yeah, we all kept our jobs because we couldn't afford to take money out for salaries.
1: After you sold those first thousand, did y'all stop your other jobs? And once you started doing these 10,000 and got extra money from your uncle? No,
0: nope, we still kept the money in the company. I finally quit. I was the first one and I made the principally sum of $500 a month.
1: Getting paid big time. Oh man, I was rolling in it. So tell us how you sold these next 10,000 then.
0: By the time we sold the thousand, a lot of companies were reordering. We sold our first 1,000 and we were done. By July, we were already out of games because we were hustling, hustling, hustling. And so with the 10,000, a lot of the stores that were ordering in Seattle were now reordering because we were promoting. It just caught on, but we kept everything local. We sold a few odd stores outside of Seattle periodically, but we kept everything within Seattle so we could control the marketing, control inventory. We control
1: everything about the product. And when you're doing this, I'm just trying to think. These orders coming in. Are you putting in computer, or like how are you keeping these in now that these people are reordering? <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep chuckling because I'm going
0: back to so, no. Everything was handwritten, and we had reams and reams of paper. There was, I think, Lotus One, Two, Three. I mean, Terry eventually, once we got past 1985, was able to start doing some of it, but no. So this was still all paper all paper. We were able to print out some forms, but no, I'd go into the store to get an order and it was on an order pad. You know, I'd literally have to write it out and we'd do a new word list. It wasn't a computer. There was 50,000 sheets of paper around the office. It was crazy. Killed too many trees, I'm
1: telling you. Especially making the game too. So then from there, did you just sell to your first 10,000 right away? I mean, how long did this take?
0: You know, almost. After we sold that thousand, we got an account at Nordstrom's and that was a huge, huge feather in our cap. And it just started taking off. So we sold through 8,600 games that first year, almost exclusively in Seattle.
1: What was your like lifestyle balance of working while you're doing this? Because I want to bring it back for anyone who's an entrepreneur, so they had to understand like, how much energy they should be devoting to what and just trying to keep balance of if you had any social interaction other than growing the company.
0: That's a really good question. As I've looked back, We pretty much kept heads down for two years. But I think the difference for us was that it was a physical product. So we weren't sitting in an office writing code. We weren't staring at a computer screen. I was physically running around doing demonstrations. We were all shipping things out of my apartment or out of the storage locker. And I think that really helped a lot. I think people lose sight of the fact that you've got to take care of yourself. You can work 24-7. But you've got to take 10 minutes to breathe. You've got to take 20 minutes to go for a walk. You've got to rejuvenate. You've got to clear your brain and keep physically fit. Because if you wear down, which I did a couple of times, bad things start happening, whether it's a little depression creep in, whether I was physically ill. You've got to take care of yourself mentally and physically on top of trying to get your success going.
1: Can you tell us about that first time you hit that wall and maybe what you're talking about depression or maybe from working too much? Because I think that's what ends up happening a lot when people are growing their first business, because you keep thinking you can do it forever. And then usually maybe there's a wall that you hit and you don't realize it till later on.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Noticing the signs are key. There's certain things and I'm only speaking for myself. It was tough. It manifests itself in numerous ways. And for me, it just became one, overwhelming, but two, I wasn't taking care of myself, about five, I guess. I was still running hard. I was still working hard. I had pictionary on the brain and I started falling apart mentally. And I would get moody. It was really hard for me to focus and to concentrate. I was a complete distraction in the office. I mean, how so? I would start taking things personally. So we'd get in fights. When I say fights, from a business standpoint, they were positive because we took our ego out. However, when we started getting in fights, At this point, I was taking things personally, and I was fighting personally, and it just became untenable, and it just was a negative drain on the partners in the business. I lost my creativity. I wasn't paying attention. I would not show up in the office. It is what it is. I mean, I could just sharing my experience, and I'm not going to hide it, and I'm not going to say
1: it didn't happen. Yeah, no, I appreciate that and keeping it real, because it's really bullshit when a lot of people think that everything was perfect the whole time, right, and that these things don't happen, because I think they happen to everybody. I mean, it's happened to me. If you're growing a business like you get so focused in on it, you don't think about these other things until you kind of look back and figure it out.
0: Yeah. You don't, well, as you say, you don't notice them when they're going on, but certainly during all this fiasco, we did. My partners did, and they were very supportive. Well, after a few arguments, they said, well, why don't you go take a little time out? (laughs) You know. Go in the corner. Go around the corner,
1: (laughs) you know, get your head
0: on straight. and When you're ready, come back. I was blessed to have really, really supportive partners and self-preservation on their part.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Maybe looking into that because maybe some people want to support you that way. But how do you get your mojo back then?
0: I literally just stopped. For me, I had to stop thinking about everything. But certainly had to stop thinking about Dictionary for a little bit. I wasn't doing anything anyway. I wasn't being creative. I wasn't supportive. I wasn't contributing anything. So for me, it was doing a little golf, doing some, I didn't meditate, but doing some breathing and just clearing my mind, focusing on, A wife by then and, you know, focusing on that and just relaxing and chilling. And that rejuvenated me. Got some hobbies. The distractions became really important for me. I would handle
1: it differently now than I did then, but
0: it worked at the time
1: for sure. You're saying you met your wife at the time. Did she notice this as well when this was going It was a little hard not to. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed like it. But you said you might handle it differently now. How would you handle it differently? Because it sounds like you handled it pretty well. At least you did relax. Some people don't even know to do that. Yeah,
0: I think it's back to my As a friend called me, I'm passionate, but not driven. So it wasn't that I felt that I was missing out when I was not at the office. You know, I did feel I was letting the guys down. I mean, there was that little guilt factor. I couldn't do anything about it, but that was kind of creeping in as well. And by saying doing it differently, I think I may have been able not to avoid it, but if I had have done some of the things that I know now while it was going on, I probably could have mitigated it. Like I said, I meditate, you know, I would have taken a little more time out. I would have understood that the business was a process rather than something that was, you know, all consuming and all debilitating. So I think I would have been able to mitigate it some. But you're right. For me at that moment, that's how I should have handled it and and it worked for me.
1: And how much money were y'all making at this point in time where you're able to take this time off to hopefully rejuvenate yourself? Like, Per year, I guess, our salary rise. how much were you making or the company making?
0: Well, we don't really talk about that. We were doing okay. By that time, we were in probably about 35 countries and selling millions and millions of games around the world.
1: Three years into it,
0: yeah, it got crazy, man.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about that because that's surprising. Because you said after that first ten thousand, that was like the first year, and then three years into it, you're in this many countries. Yeah,
0: it was uh, well, pretty close. And again, it was the simplicity of the game, and it went from the eighty-six hundred games, and then it just became too big for us because we started selling the ten thousand. Those sold out. Then we did twenty thousand, and then we did another twenty thousand because out of cash flow. But then we blew up. So by February of 86, so what, 10 months, not even that, eight months after we launched, the world knew about Pictionary. We were starting to sell up and down the coast. We were starting to get orders from the East Coast. And it was, as I say, the world decided Pictionary was going to be the next
1: trip of Pursuit. What can you say that's from? I mean, was there anything to do with marketing, especially virally? I guess I can understand maybe more today. It seems like it'd be hard to make things go viral then. We try to figure that
0: out ourselves. I think the bottom line was, one, it was the culture. People were playing games. So they were predisposed thanks to Trivial Pursuit. But Pictionary was the quintessential family game. 10-year-old could play with a 50-year-old or an 80-year-old. You didn't have to be smart. I mean, that was one of the wordless criteria. <laughs> you know, actually, if you could read every word in the game, well, maybe not 10-year-old, but everybody would knew. So I think it's simplicity, it's inclusiveness, it's fun, and people would play it and go, oh, I've got to get one. So virally, for us, was word of mouth. So people would play and then they'd go out and buy it. So six people played it. We'd usually get five other sales out of that game.
1: Okay. That seems like that might be it. Once you play once, you're playing with a group of people generally anyways, right? More than just maybe two. Then all them want to take it home. And the only way is to buy it. So, okay. I could see that. So how were you able to fulfill all the orders in that quick of time? We had to make a
0: decision, the license. We had a national sales manager at that point who was helping. And we had to license the game. We just couldn't afford to do it. So we went to all the major game companies, came to us, and long, long process, long story. But we wound up licensing to a joint venture who did, as I say, the heavy lifting, manufacturing, marketing, distribution, sales, and we collected a royalty. That was the only way we could have gone as big as we did.
1: Yeah, because it seemed near impossible. That's why I was like, so shocked. Maybe three years in, you're able to get that far. Do you want to tell us about licensing and like how you made sure you did it right? Because that seems like an endeavor in itself. That if maybe if you did it wrong, maybe you're scared they're going to steal your game or something.
0: Yeah, it was without question the biggest decision we'd ever make, and it goes back to one of our principles: take care of Pictionary. There was three major companies at the time that could afford us, if you will.
1: And what three were they?
0: Well, it turned into be the joint venture: Hasbro, Mattel another band called Worlds of Wonder. They had Laser tag and Teddy Ruxpin. And so they all came to us and wanted to license. We didn't even have to go search it out. The joke became all anybody would sell in Seattle from the game stores was Pictionary. So we got their attention. So we decided to license. And after a couple of conversations, we realized that they wanted to put their stamp on the game. So before we licensed, they wanted to change a little bit of the graphics. They thought some of the words weren't good enough. They thought this marketing plan would work. So we realized everybody has their own agenda. It's not our agenda. We know what's good for Pictionary, what's good for us. So when we had, ultimately, we had a deal with Hasbro, biggest game company in the world, great royalty rate. It was going to be brilliant. Contract came, no guaranteed marketing spend. no guaranteed sales, no guarantees they weren't going to change the product. So we said no.
1: Have you ever read four books in one day? And no. Children's books don't count. With Blinkist, you can get the key insights of the best nonfiction books in less than 15 minutes. So that's more like 50 books in a day. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge. And learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere, and they do mean anywhere. My personal recommendation is to check out some of the classic business books that you always wanted to read, but never had the time to, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best-of lists, so you're always getting powerful Ideas and a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds, 15 minutes at a time. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com/millionaire to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com. Slash millionaire to start your seven day free trial, and you can cancel at any time. Blinkist.com slash millionaire. And I think that's important what you notice because this might be that first turning point. I feel like when you're younger, you think everyone's rooting for you, business wise or not, but you realize that everyone does have their own agenda. It sounded like maybe you had a good attorney helping you with this to figure this out, or did y'all realize all these things in the contract that came back weren't aligned with y'all?
0: It was us. I mean, Andy, our attorney was definitely part of the discussion without question. But no, we knew, I'll say again instinctively, that if we turned it over, we still would have made really good money. However, they could have lost focus. So we knew that we had to protect it. It just, by then we were, you know, eight, 10 months in plus the creation part. So we knew what we had to do it was tough. Turn it down, Bradley. Nobody does that.
1: And when you're doing that, your thought process was that, hey, maybe they're just kind of taking this game and not going to put as much love into it as y'all would have and maybe try to promote their other games and maybe just trying to get your game maybe more off the market than necessarily promoting it as much as y'all would?
0: No, we were sure they would have promoted it as long as it was being successful. But as soon as another game came out that they were making more money on, they would have lost focus. They didn't want anything in the contract that would tie them to have to continue to push Pictionary. We put in sales guarantees as well. If they didn't do a certain amount, we'd get the game back. So we need
1: them to stay focused. Do you have any suggestions for anyone who's going to get an attorney or someone to help with this before they get started?
0: Figure out what you need and then make some phone calls. If you don't have anybody that can recommend somebody, recommendations are always the best. If somebody's used somebody and you trust that person That's always your first stop. But interview attorneys because they all have a different skill set. They all have a different mindset. And they'll talk to you on the phone for half an hour or whatever. And it's a good way to get free information. Go with somebody you trust, somebody with the skills you need. But as exactly what you just said. Somebody's going to be looking out for your best interest. You you want them to be almost a partner in this.
1: And you'll turn down the contract that they send back to you all. I mean, it seems like somewhat devastating maybe at that point.
0: Oh, my gosh, yes. No plan B. Harry and I were like looking at each other red-faced when we hung up on them. again, one of those moments you remember. (laughs) We're in our attorney Andy's office and we push the button, click, no deal. We are like, you know, red, nauseous. And we have no plan B. And so this was not a good moment. And how old were you at this point?
1: 26. Yeah. So you're in the attorney's office. Y'all are both calling him. Y'all are basically pissed off at the contract they send y'all. I guess your attorney knows that y'all are not going to be happy about it as well, right? Because y'all have already read the language. Or are they telling you it over the phone?
0: They already told us. And we were on the phone. Yeah, the infamous line, you know, you don't have the guarantees in there. You don't have this. And we need this in the contract. And there's quiet for a second. And all of a sudden, at the other end of the line, this voice says, we're Hasbro. You're going to have to trust us. And you say? I said, the only people I trust in the world are the three other guys sitting in this room with me. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And I hung up. Wow. And that's when we realized we had no plan B and got a
1: little nervous. Mm-hmm. From there, basically, after you decided y'all weren't going to do the deal with them, What did you decide to go ahead and do next?
0: So we hang up the phone on Hasbro, and we decide that we just have to keep working. We're just going to keep selling. We're going to just go as fast as we can and order as many as we can, but we're going to keep an eye out for another licensing deal. And one happened a couple of weeks later with our sales manager who knew all the salesmen from Trivial Pursuit, the guy who manufactured all the Trivial Pursuits, and the guy who marketed all the Trivial Pursuits. They formed a joint venture. And license the game from us. And they gave us everything we wanted, our guarantees, a better royalty rate. We got kind of lucky at that point. But by saying no to the one company, we got a better deal.
1: And how much later was that? We started meeting them a couple of weeks later, and it took another three months to finalize the deal. This few weeks might have been a little bit terrified, but luckily it sounds like within that point in time, you're able to figure it out pretty quick.
0: Yeah, we figured it out. We also just pretty quickly, as I said, just went back to work. We didn't dwell on it too, okay, a couple of days. We didn't dwell on it too long. We just had to keep going. We had that licensing deal hammered out pretty quickly.
1: I know you said you don't talk about, like, maybe the sales price to the company or, I mean, what the end-up licensing ended up being. But before you did, were you all making money comfortably? I mean, were you personally, like, taking home, like, 100 a year or was there way more than that or a lot less? You weren't barely making anything. Can you give us an idea of what your lifestyle was at least like before you sold? We went from
0: selling the 8,600 games out of my apartment to the licensing deal. So that first year we sold in the U.S. 350000 And then the next year, we started selling in Europe and we sold 3 million in the United States. And by year four, we sold 11 million just Pictionary Senior. And by then, we'd had a junior game. So we went from, and then by then, by that fourth year, we'd been in Europe. We were in another dozen countries selling another million or two over there. So we were quite comfortable.
1: Yeah. Even before the sale, you were making a decent amount, it sounds like. Yeah, we're making a very decent amount. We owned it for 17 years. Okay. And then after you did the licensing thing, you just started bawling, basically. Like everything started going really well. <laughs> I've Nobody's
0: ever said you started bawling before. That was not. I like that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we did. We never lost sight. We never stopped working. We kept plugging away. We kept making sure all the different companies were doing what they were supposed to do. We didn't take the money and run.
1: So what's the difference like? It was just between the three of y'all first and then how you're working. I mean, do you move offices? Are you senior manager of this? Like what's it like your role as far as once you start licensing with a big company like this?
0: Yeah, the one thing that licensing allowed us to do is to keep small. So we didn't have to go out and raise money and have a lot of employees in each country. And so we kept it between Terry, Gary and myself. We still all had our jobs. Terry was running the business side. I was creative. Gary was helping with marketing. We all kind of overlap. We hired another gentleman, Rich Gilt, to take us to bigger heights in Europe. But we never had more than two employees. We were the biggest selling game in the world for seven or eight years, and we never had more than two employees. So we kept our dynamic. Yeah, we changed offices, and we all bought big houses, and we're living a pretty grandiose life by this point. Yeah, it was pretty heady stuff.
1: Did you just steamroll through the next, what, you said 17 years? We steamrolled for about 10. We just kept opening new countries, new products, new creatives.
0: And as I say, we wanted to make sure that the licensees were doing what they were supposed to do. Our involvement didn't slow, but our time started slowing after 10 years. Came not autopilot, but we certainly we had our systems down.
1: Was there any other hurdles after you ended up licensing? The hurdle was to stay involved. More often than not, when you have
0: a product or people have a product and they license it, that's... Somebody else is doing all the work. They just sit back and collect royalties. But our hurdle was we didn't get to retire. We kept going to Europe many times a year to make sure that the marketing companies had the latest information because it wasn't being disseminated. We stayed involved for quite a while, for many, many years. And that was our personal hurdle. So there was word list issues. There were some countries weren't paying quarterly royalties. And this one company was going to go bankrupt. And so they decided to keep our royalties for two quarters to keep themselves afloat. Well, so this is
1: interesting. Tell us about that dynamic. What country were they in? They were in the UK. Okay. And So they're legally allowed to do that? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, didn't, I didn't know. I thought it was going to be a sketchier country or something, honestly. Well, so. it, was,
0: it was just the situation when the royalty didn't show up. The first time, of course, pounding tables and phone calls and screaming and da-da-da-da-da. And they managed to put us off for another quarter. So by the time the second royalty didn't show up, payment didn't show up, I was like, fellas, we got a problem
1: how did they ended up eventually paying? No, we
0: cut a deal. We had to bite the bullet and take a lesser amount, negotiated amount. So they would stay in business. If they went bankrupt, we'd lose everything. Well, we negotiated a deal and they still went bankrupt and never paid us. So we lost a lot of money out of that deal. We wound up going with another company, of course, but that one hurt. You no,
1: know, it sounds like, especially if it was the UK, because it must have, because it's a pretty big population, right? They were big numbers and we were getting paid back then in
0: pounds. So instead of our normal royalty rate is basically a double the royalty rate because the exchange rate was so good.
1: Damn. That's something to think about, too. Maybe if we're lucky enough to have a product that goes like that. Is there any other suggestions that you have if you're licensing your product what you've learned over this time for someone if they were wanting to do that?
0: Like I said, you have to do what's right for your product. You can't trust somebody else to take care of it for you. As you said, they're not rooting for you. They're in it for the money. And that's what it is. And we were in for the money. Make no mistake. I take care of Pictionary. That's what we knew we'd make our most money. It wasn't like we were, we made some changes to it periodically if it benefited everybody. I mean, we weren't maniacal about it. But now you have to take care of that product in your licensing deals because nobody will take care of it like you do. And if they have a great idea, if whoever you license it to has a great idea, be open to it and go, oh that's better. Let's do it. So don't be so stringent that you're not looking at outside ideas or suggestions and input. I mean, that was key to success as well. And then clearly get in
1: writing. Have you ever talked to that first partner that you tried to go to ever since you got your second partner? You remember the first guy who turned you down for the money? He turned me down to be my partner, not the money. Oh, and do you ever talk to him still?
0: Yeah. We're all still best friends. He's actually flying out, him and his wife for my birthday.
1: Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know if he ever, like, pinches himself and wish he wouldn't have or whatever. I didn't know how close of a friend or person that he is, and if it's fun to keep out. But that's pretty cool that he's still your friend. Because sometimes friendships over that, I feel like, could be kind of messy, right? Or they're maybe they're beating up themselves, too, or they're jealous that they didn't do it when they should have.
0: Well, we're all human. I don't think he beat himself up, but I'm sure there was a moment or two. But one of the biggest decisions I had to make early on was regarding those friends, those three friends that I played the game with. And I knew my skill set, and those three guys had the same skill set. We were all waiters. We were all creative. If I had asked them to join as a partnership, probably would not be sitting here as, you know, having this conversation.
1: Yeah, on this amazing podcast, right? Yeah, it was a tough decision
0: to not ask them to join. It was the right decision, ultimately. And we're all still friends, too, because one of the guys is hosting the dinner party that the other guy's flying into.
1: So from there, I think you mentioned that you eventually sold the company. Yeah, we said so we owned it for 17 years. The international license was
0: becoming available. And 17 years is a long time. We were all kind of losing steam, if you will. And so we put it out.
1: It's 97 or so?
0: 90, about 2000.
1: 2002, 2001.
0: We ultimately cut the deal in 2001. We started nosing around at 2000 to see if anybody was interested and Mattel was. And so we ultimately cut a very lucrative deal with them. So we'd be Getting royalties for the 17 years,
1: and then we still got a big cash payout, which was kind of nice. Do you still get paid from it? No, we just sold a lock, stock, and barrel. Okay. And you said the international licensing was coming up. What does that mean? So we didn't want to set up companies in every country. There are game companies
0: that they want grandeur. I mean, somebody pointed out to us that, do you want to make money or do you want a game company? That was early on in the negotiations. We said, oh, we want a game company. We want to have, (laughs) we want to be captains of industry and I want to be important and ego and I want offices all over the world. He goes, president of World's Wonder goes, no, you want to make money. (laughs) I look at
1: him, I go, you want to be balling. exactly.
0: Exactly. (laughs) I go, well, not they the same? No. So licensing also allowed us to keep much, much more of our money because our overhead was nothing. And we licensed internationally as well, but they were more disjointed, if you will, because they were separate countries. So we had to get licenses in several countries and master licenses that handled a lot of countries at once. And so the master license for Europe was handled by Hasbro at this point, and they had about 20 of the countries under their one license. So rather than going back, and they weren't going to renew... So rather than going and licensing with each individual country, which was what we avoided in the first place, that's when we decided to
1: sell. Was there any low point other than it sounds like there was one in the beginning before you end up actually licensing, but anything else along the way? Because it sounds like everything kind of worked out perfectly. <laughs> There's always the crisis of confidence. Right. When I'm agreed. Tell us about that. Always.
0: Well, when I was early on, there was two incidents. One, after our first year, there was a game that came out called Out of Context. And we had just sold our 350000 but we still weren't guaranteed to be the next big game. And this gentleman came out with Out of Context, and it was starting to sell. And they were getting really big numbers out of Europe and out of the United States. And I was absolutely terrified that we were going to get swallowed by these guys. We were going to miss out. And there was quite a while there, many months until the numbers came in that I was convinced we were done. You know, I kept pounding the table. We got to sell more. We got to do more. And, you know, everybody kept telling us, you know, they know what they're doing. I didn't believe them, but it worked out. But those were a rough period.
1: Hopefully going on a positive note out, obviously it sounds selling. Everything went pretty well. That happened in 2001. What have you been up to since?
0: I was blessed with the commodity after we sold of time. I decided I loved Pictionary, but I didn't love the game business. So I was fortunate enough to be home for my kids. I traveled. I mentored. I invented a few other things. I make wine in Argentina. I was just enjoying my life while giving back. A lot of philanthropy. And that was a great run. And I had more fun than I knew what to do with. I'm working on a book. I am doing more mentoring. I'm transitioning into the next phase, the next chapter. And I want to keep sharing my story and hopefully inspire other people. If I can do it, that was a waiter, for goodness sakes. I wasn't a businessman. I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I wasn't in the game industry. I just was a normal guy with an idea and I just followed through on it. And so if I can do it, I guarantee you, anybody else listening
1: can do it as well. And I think that's key, what you're saying too, in the beginning, right? You go back and you still remember, you said it, when you actually took the pen and paper out, went to your backyard and actually started writing out the words that you actually did something and stopped thinking about it.
0: Yeah, the key to my success, and most people would, well, not disagree, but you've got to have a goal. You've got to have this grand plan. I did not have one because if I did, it would have been too much. And it doesn't mean you don't have to have a goal, but I took it one step at a time. The word list. Okay, I got that done. Now we'll do a play test. Now we'll figure out the color. And it just builds on itself until that point where you go, okay, now we've really got to start looking at the bigger plan, the bigger picture. But for me, all I wanted to do, my intention, not my goal, my intention was to create a fun board game. And then the rest would happen from there. And that's how it worked
1: out. Those last 15, 16 years, you told us about some of the things you did. Can you tell us any more of the fun experiences that we should consider? Maybe we'd have to do it on a budget comparatively, but it sounds like it's been a fun time that I think that's important that you actually, at the end of the day, you wanted to have fun, right? If you're not having fun in life, then what's the point?
0: You have fun when you're doing your business too. I'll throw that in as well. You know, Not just take care of yourself physically, but mentally is if you take a night and just Whatever you like to do, go to a play, have a beer, or go for a bike ride. The business will not fall apart if you miss it for a night. It will not miss you. Go have fun. I completely agree with that. Like I said, I run with the bulls every year. I've done 25 runs. You can do that in a budget once you get there. That's free. That's a blast. I invest in really bad movies. <laughs>
1: I don't mean to brag. But yeah. What's the worst one you've invested in?
0: Well, funny enough, the worst was called uh, Ancient Warrior, but it showed at the Cannes Film Festival. and. I met at festival one of, now, that was 16 years ago, one of my best friends, a film producer in Finland, lives in Helsinki. So I go to Helsinki every year and hang out with them, and we travel the world together. So you never know who you're going to meet and when you're going to meet them. Got to be open. I call it Omaha. Open mind, open arms, and open heart. When you go through life like that,
1: great things happen just being open up to anything. I think that that's happening more and more. I think with maybe the younger generation or just internet in general, I think you have to be more open to things that maybe everything you've been told or whatever is not necessarily true. Having the ability to be open to starting your own business or whatever comes along your way is important.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, fun life. And as you say, the internet has opened it up and travel is easier and cheaper. You know, it's a big world out there. Go explore it, go have a little fun with it and just take it as it comes. And it's a beautiful place.
1: Looking back, is there any question I should have asked that I didn't or anything else that you might have wanted to touch on? Ask me, did you
0: have passion for Pictionary? So did you have
1: passion for Pictionary?
0: Yeah, I did. I had passion to get started. People will tell you and told me, you've got to have passion for what you do. You know, then it'll be great. Well, I contend you've got to have passion. That's the thing that will light the fire. That's what you say. Okay, I'm going to go do this. But then you've got to love it. Because there's times when I just didn't want to do it anymore. The passion faded. I was tired. I was exhausted. I just, I'm done for the day. I'm just done with this whole project. But I quickly loved Pictionary. I loved my partners. I loved what I was doing. And that's what fueled me. That's what kept me going. And with just passion, it doesn't necessarily make it a business. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make money. It doesn't necessarily mean anybody's going to care, but it's a great way to get started. But then if you don't love it and you don't see a way to make money at it, Or even if it's a nonprofit, if you don't see what's going to accomplish what you want, it's okay to stop.
1: That's important because if you're at your job right now and you're hating it and you've hated it for the last three years, if you're not having fun in life, what's the point, right? If you're just making yourself do it because you did it, like you signed up for that job five years ago, you're torturing yourself. It's your choice at the end of the day. But I think it's a much better route to find something that you enjoy, like you said, even if it's not necessarily work, but I think what, like 60% of people actually literally hate their jobs. And so it's just kind of sad. It's just, I think that was a statistic that I heard the other day, but it's just hopefully you find that passion. And then if you can find it, Again, like you said, it fuels you so hard in the beginning, too. At some point, you're going to come across these hurdles. You know, you'll have a dip in the passion, but eventually, if you stopped liking Pictionary altogether and your partners, then you probably would have stopped. I think that passion is kind of what fueled you, obviously, in the beginning and fueled you through those next 17 plus years. Absolutely. I think was Buddha said,
0: as you're walking down the path, it's okay to turn around.
1: Thank you for doing the interview. I think that was some important last words. I don't know if there's anything else that you'd want to leave us with. If not, is there a way that people could say thank you for doing the interview? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? When is this going (laughs) to air? Tomorrow. Oh, shit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I record it first, and then I mix it up based on the guests that come out. We have some time. It's better if you don't date your advice, but is there a good way for them to reach out to you on any social medias or email, or would you rather them just not give you a ring?
0: Yeah, the book was coming out, and now it's, it's delayed a little bit.
1: Tell me about the book. I'm sure we can make sure this recording comes out right when your book comes out. Well, I
0: mean, it's not going to be till fall, so
1: I, if this interview can come out before that, and pre-orders and all the rest of it. So Maybe the best way for them to support you is via your book. So do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, it's process of
0: writing right now. It's going to be called Game Changer. Oh, pun intended. No, I see what completely you did there. pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. So I'm working on that right now when that is ready to go. If you want to hear the long version of the story, check out Amazon, and it'll be coming up pretty soon, I hope, and then you'll get the whole story of Pictionary.
1: We'll put the link in the show notes, and it's called Game Changer. And is it by yourself? Uh,
0: well, I'm hiring a new writer like the next week. This is why, <laughs> this is why it's delayed. This is why it's delayed, and I, but I know you know I've got all the information. But it's I literally before you and I set this up, I had the book was done, and then about a week ago I decided I didn't like the manuscript.
1: <laughs> you started reading it. I started reading it. And I go, you know
0: what? But I know what I want, and I got some really good people working with me. When it comes out, it'll be really good. And it's funny enough that it's written. I want to write it for your audience. And right now they're not, they wouldn't like it. So I want to get it done right. That's why rather than pushing it, I said, take a like picture. Take a deep breath. And when you're ready, you're ready.
1: That's important. Instead of just putting more garbage out into the world, that's the reason I try to wait on these interviews, make sure we edit them as much as we can. Hopefully, you know, the quality there is kind of more important than getting it out right away. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Rob, for doing the interview here. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, if you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes: Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant, Episode 73 with Stephen of Tower Paddle Boards, Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Greaten Beer, Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try Episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Ali Ho of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. Or we'll try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. Or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget we're a virtual family here at Millionaire Interviews. That means you, the listener, the guest, the editors, and the host. And so don't forget our... Hell, it's a family model. Are you ready, Jim? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it
0: is.
1: Share the podcast.